0: people saying, I've done my research. But in reality, research is a lot more than a few Google searches.
1: And the problem is, when you picture a researcher, you probably think of somebody wearing a lab coat and trying to take over the world. I'm Anna. And I'm Beck. We're two researchers wanting to break down these stereotypes in a fun way. Welcome to We've Done the Research podcast, where we chat to researchers about who they are, the amazing work they're doing, and why it's so important.
0: Today on the podcast, we have Amy Sarker, who is a PhD candidate at Kids Research at the Children's Hospital in Westmead in Sydney, Australia. And she is studying aggressive brain tumors and how they invade the brain and how we can treat them. And her research has already won grant funding prizes and been published in impressive scientific journals so we are so excited to speak to you today amy welcome to the we've done the research podcast thank you so much for such an
2: amazing intro and thank you for having me um yeah i'm feeling a bit chuffed hearing all
0: of my achievements there um but thank you so much i'm really excited I think we work so hard and you know you tick off boxes win a win a presentation win a grant but then if you put it all into one sentence you think oh maybe I am a bit impressive (laughs) yeah like I was just saying like before this that like you just kind of forget
2: about all your achievements until someone spells it out and even then you're like no no that wasn't me (laughs) who was that who's that a bit of imposter syndrome isn't it (laughs) a lot of imposter syndrome I think
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I have a bit of like a funny story about how Amy and I met. So we met in pre-COVID times when you were allowed to meet in person. And there was this community event going on where they were promoting um, the history of medicine in the community. And so they had this old hospital open where you could go in and look at the old beds and the old instruments they used. I would have hated to be sick at the time because it was so... Scary. but they had a meet a researcher event. And um, Amy and I were both there as researchers sort of sitting in this park at these little picnic tables. And anyone in the community could just come up and talk to us about our science. And that's how I first heard about your amazing brain research, and just thought it was so incredible. So I want to know, did you always want to be a researcher? Did you always want to research like firstly just to touch on how we met like that was such a weird day because it was very hot
2: and we sat in this park for hours and we ended up exploring this old hospital and we all thought it was haunted and it was a whole thing but it was such a good day to get together and actually talk about our research in a casual way and like it was sort of my first foray into science communications and sort of where I started to develop that passion for it so I just I really like that that's sort of like our little origin story of that really random day of sitting in this hot park but um yeah, like my, my sort of passion for research, I would say, started really young. Um, I was one of those kids that wanted to know the answer to everything. Um, my mom actually had inherited a collection of encyclopedias, like the old school Encyclopedia Britannicas, and they're from the 80s. And I, as a child, like a six-year-old, would go and pick a letter every day and read that book um, because I just thought it was interesting and I wanted to learn more. Um, and that sort of fostered throughout my life it sort of came to sort of a pinnacle when uh, I was in high school and one of my best friend's mother passed away from brain cancer, very young. And it was a very, um, it was a very tough time for everyone. And I can't even imagine for my friends, but I think from then, I really wanted to do something good. I think I really wanted to see if I could help people and understand, you know, the complexities of cancer and see if we could find a solution for stuff like this, because, you know, in the last 20 years, there's not really been much of an increase in, um, brain cancer prognosis over that time. So I really, really wanted to help people. That's sort of where it started.
1: That's really exciting. And so what was your journey sort of after you finished, um, I'm assuming you did an undergraduate degree? Did you go on to do an honours? Did you do like that sort of traditional research pathway?
2: Yeah, so I definitely did a very traditional research pathway. I did a Bachelor of Medical Science at Sydney University um, and I majored in neuroscience at the time and wanted to do... um, yeah, I wanted to work in brain cancer, but I was also really interested in how the brain works. So I was kind of thinking between neuroscience research and cancer research, and I sort of fell onto my honors project. Honestly, I think someone walked past me and was like, "Hey, there's free food at this event. Come, come and." <laughs> <laughs>
0: And so the best way to attract any student is say there's free food. We're there. 100%. And I was like a hungry third year uni student.
2: And I went to this event and it was when they were pitching honors projects for anatomy and histology. So that encompassed things like cell biology and pathology and things like that. And I hadn't really thought about that sort of avenue and I listened to one of the, the speakers and they happened to work at my lab at the time that the lab that I'm at now, and we just hit it off. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I might go and see what they're doing. And it sort of happened that way. And it was kind of a random point in my um, career, I think at that point, point. and I stayed there and I did honors. So that's when I started my project with brain cancers. Um, and I did an RA position for six months right after my honors year, and then I transitioned into a PhD, which I'm still doing at the moment.
1: Awesome, that's so exciting. Um, so you said you worked in brain cancer research, but I guess like, what's the big problem that you're trying to solve?
2: One of the issues with the particular brain cancers that I look at is that they're very aggressive and very invasive. So. These cancers they migrate or they move really fast throughout the brain and the brains this very soft squishy organ so these cancers basically destroy the cells around them as they move throughout the brain and the issue is you can't really you know fully treat a cancer that's already spread far out from its primary tumor site so the idea is how can we understand this invasive behavior and maybe find ways we can contain these cells or we can stop this highly invasive Um, behavior we can you know better treat them going forward so that's sort of been my question is how can we understand how they move how could we potentially treat how they move and then maybe increase the
0: chances of existing
2: therapies at the moment
0: it's so like scary and creepy in a way to hear about cancers moving and having like a, a behavior of their own in a way it is very creepy like um I think years
2: I've definitely started to um think of them as little little machines or little little creatures and they they move like little creatures they have these long spindly legs and arms well the machinery their their skeleton that sort of pulls them throughout the brain and I kind of think of it as them sending out their arms and tethering themselves as they pull along and you know it, it is very creepy when you think about it that way
0: so how do you obviously this is happening at the cellular level very small so how do you study it yeah, so it's a lot of um,
2: cell culturing. So we have to grow these cells in you know, culture apparatuses. And then we do a lot of live imaging. So we put them in particular environments and we um, use a microscope and we capture how they move over the course of, to- of a time period. So, for example, we might do over 24 hours, over three days. Um, and we have different models that we use to sort of mimic how they move throughout the brain.
0: So, would a culture that would be in cells in a in a small dish, or yeah, maybe maybe paint the picture so the audience, if they haven't done a basic lab research, can sort of picture what that might look like and what the different environments could be. Is that like hot and cold, or um, somewhat. So, so when I say different
2: environments, so this is sort of another prong of my PhDs. Sort of building models that better mimic this soft brain that i was just talking about so if you think about the brain you don't really think about a plastic dish right so right. when you think about lab research you you picture like a plastic plate and you picture like a, like a 2d surface and the cells are stuck to it and they pull themselves along this 2d s- solid surface but really in the brain that's not how it works there's three dimensions in the brain the brain is soft so um, a lot of people like to say that the brain has the same softness as like silk and tofu, if that's like a good way to think about it. So if you think about like silk and tofu versus a plastic dish, like you can't really like replicate a lot of that behavior in those two environments. So a lot of the work that I've done throughout honors and into my PhD is building better models. So we have, we have these uh, dishes that have these soft gels on them. And these soft gels are built to mimic some of those softnesses that found in the brain. Um, And we put the cells on those dishes and we use the microscope and we image how they move along those soft dishes. So it's interesting because the cells can sense the softness underneath them. That's how they work. That's just what they do. Um, So that's one of our models. So another one of our models is building um, these tumor spheroids or these tumor balls. So basically we take single cells and we clump them together. Um, And when they form these clumps, they kind of look like what the tumor is like in the brain. And then we put that clump of cells into another soft gel. So again, like a soft environment, like the brain. And then this, the, this clump of cells starts to disperse like they would in the brain. And then we measure how far they disperse again, using live
0: cell microscopy. So you have a mini cell, you have a mini brain and and then you have mini tumors, and then you're trying to figure out how those work together and how that tumor spreads through your mini brain. Am I hearing yes. that correctly? <laughs> so we haven't hit the mini brains yet. So this is sort of the in between to the mini brains. So if I were to paint
2: it out like, like a progression. So we've got first we've got those gels in 2D, and the cells are sitting on top of these soft gels. And then yep. we move into these balls of tumors that we put into this, put into a 3D gel and they move out of the 3D gel. And then the third sort of iteration of that is we have these mini brains, which this was pioneered by another one of the PhDs in our lab named Victoria Pryor, where you develop these mini brain models from human stem cells and you turn them into human brain tissue and then you use that to model um, what a human brain would be and then you stick those balls of tumours onto the mini brain and then the balls sort of, you know, disperse into the brain. So that's sort of that third iteration.
1: That is so interesting and it sounds like um, from, you know, what you're telling us there that you know, there's lots of collaboration happening between different people as well. So what other fields do you collaborate with to sort of, you know, build these sort of mini, mini tumours and mini brains? Um, what other fields do you need to work with?
2: Yeah, so especially for our mini brain work, um, Victoria, the PhD student, um, did extensive work with a lab in Wollongong who were primarily developmental biologists. So they were doing all of that work, getting uh, stem cells and, you know, turning them into brain tissue. So that's sort of where one of that, one of those big collaborations came from. We also do a lot of work with um, engineers, so biomedical engineers, you know, developing um, scaffolds or environments that mimic the brain tissue. Um, so it's a lot of work with like tissue engineering, um We've got a lot of mathematicians on, you know, involved as well. Um, There's a lot going on um, just trying to, you know, develop these models and make them the best that they can be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That is so interesting. And, you know, it's part of a big part of research that I think a lot of people maybe don't realise sometimes is that, you know, research is so multidisciplinary, like, you know, you're always working with um, people from different fields to sort of make your research come together and make it as effective as possible.
2: And like, just again, thinking about another collaboration we've got going on. Um, so we've got another side project project going on about, you know, developing better brain you know, models. And we have some, uh, collaborators who do 3d printing, um, but they're 3d printing gels and then putting the cells into those gels and you know, we're trying to see how that, so that's being done with Inventure Life Science and they're out in in the city and they're a really cool, you know, startup tech company. And that's another really cool, like a really cool collaboration that we've got going on. Like I wouldn't even imagine working with someone who's doing 3D printing. So you're you're so right. Like the amount of people that you meet in this whole process is amazing.
1: Um, Side note, how many projects are you working on at once?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like giving you a little bit of a snapshot of, of the lab I'm sort of I'm doing one little portion of that stuff but like it just really goes to show like how everyone's expertise all together in the lab as well come together like you know we're all sort of got got a main goal, but we're all doing very different things, but they all have the same, you know, underlying message and underlying goal as well. It's really important.
0: Do you have any patients who used to have brain tumors or who are currently going through the process of, you know, they're going to have their brain tumor removed or something who you speak to about your research? So I
2: don't really have much patient interaction at this point. Um, I'm very much, you know, right in the lab, but I do know a few people and a few families who have had brain cancers in their life. Like I said, my, one of my closest friends um, has gone through the process and I have another um, close friend whose family unfortunately lost two of their children to childhood cancer. And they are very, very invested in the work that I do. And I think they actually, um, they, every time I see them, they're very keen on knowing what's next and, you know, how it's going. So I think it gives a lot of people um, a lot of optimism for the future as well. So it's, it's really nice to, to share a lot of this with other people, especially when they have that going on at the same time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's always amazing to hear people doing such incredible work. And I know, um, you know, they've had that beanies for brain cancer, raising awareness, but I think it's really important also to hear from the amazing researchers who have the boots on the ground doing the work in the in the lab as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's also really important that we, you know, start exploring and
2: telling more people about what we're doing in the lab. And it also helps, you know, raise awareness outside of the lab as well, which is great.
1: Totally. And Amy, I don't know, like, I'm not a a specialist in doing stuff in the lab, but sort of with your research that you do in the lab, how would that then translate to like a clinical setting or like, you know, Um, moving forward in like sort of the future, if you know what you find out is successful, how do you then translate that into like clinical or patient work?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think a lot of researchers and like rife in lab work tend to forget about those things. But so I'm working with this particular agent at the moment um, that were developed by some of our colleagues at University of Sydney, and they're working on this new drug that can potentially contain these highly invasive cells. So it's a you know very preclinical testing at this moment, but um, it's really interesting that we could find a potential new therapy that can contain cells and then increase the chances of you know additional therapies like surgery, like chemotherapy. Like I said, if we can contain these cells from spreading throughout the brain, we lessen the chance of you know recurring tumors and we can increase the chances of survival. So I think you know knowing that I'm testing a new drug at the moment on these models that are more relevant to the brain and how soft the brain is and how Um, the cells act in the brain, I think it gives new agents a better chance moving through into the clinical space, because we've really optimized that preclinical testing phase.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so important, because, uh, I mean, the research has shown that it takes up to 17 years to get from the lab all the way to something that we can use in our clinics. So yeah, if we can shorten that time frame, that's sort of... World changing in a way, exactly, exactly. And I was just about to say, like, we
2: have seen, like, the literature. The literature has definitely shown that a lot of agents that get approved preclinically and they enter into clinical trials. So once they start being used in humans, and you know, as they progress throughout into the clinical space, they tend to fail as they hit those large, like, those late end um, trials. And there's a lot of discrepancy as to why did they fail in clinical trial, but they worked great in the lab. Like, what what's going on here? So the goal of a lot of my work is to try bridge that gap between, you know, preclinical and clinical. And if we can make it much more effective preclinically, and if we can get the drug working or the agent working in a model that better mimics what, it, what it's like in the human, then, you know, we're increasing that chance of it coming through into, into, clinical, into the clinical space. So I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, Amy, that is such important work that you're doing, um, trying to close that gap. Like 17 years is such a long time. And also, you know, in that time, there's probably new things that have, you know, been developed that are potentially more effective as well. So, um, yeah, anything that we can do to try and shorten that time frame um, for research is so, so exciting. So one of the things you hear about a lot is the blood-brain barrier and, um, you know, talking about how things can cross the blood-brain barrier. Have you done any work in that space? Um, and especially with, like, the sort of drugs that you're testing... And do you know much about that? How that sort of works, and could explain that to our listeners?
2: Yeah, that that is such a great thing that you brought up because it is such a caveat to the progression of a lot of therapies for the brain because of this very you know tight blood-brain barrier. A lot of things can't get through, so you have to design drugs that are you know able to cross that barrier. And it, you know, it's a lot of um, time and effort that to do so. So personally, we don't work at work with you know that space. Um, But we are definitely trying to use therapies or use new agents in our lab that have been shown to cross the blood brain barrier because we don't want to find a really good agent that works in our model and then find out later in the fact that it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. So what's interesting about um, the new agent that I'm working on with our collaborators at Sydney Uni is that um, its unique structure allows it to cross the, the blood brain barrier. So that was a tick from the get go for us. Um, So, yeah, that's something that we definitely want to consider going forward. Um, And even with our mini brain models, like we're definitely not there yet in, you know, understanding how to make a blood brain barrier or, you know, mimic that in a dish at the moment. But that is
0: something that a lot of people are thinking about at the moment. And when you say agent, does that mean drug? Or is it something different? (laughs) Yes, like like a therapy or a drug. Yeah. Okay, beautiful. So where are you up to? in your research journey now. So what have you found so far? How far along are you? It's really weird to put it all together when someone asks you that,
2: um, especially as a PhD student. So I'm at my, you know, the third year of my PhD. So sort of the pointy end of it. Um, Unfortunately, global events has sort of hindered the progression (laughs) of that in a linear fashion. But um, I would like to say that I'm, I found some really interesting results. So that new drug that i'm testing has shown some you know promising effects in a couple of our models so it's in, it's decreased the spread of cells from that tumor ball so whenever we've done any experiments of seeing the the tumor mass in the gels and the drug has decreased how much they spread out um, we've also started to see some decrease of spread in the mini brain models as well. Um, we're very early in that, in that analysis at the moment, um, we're trying to figure out a good way to quantify how cells move throughout our mini brain models. So from I, and from a couple of experiments, it definitely looks like the the drug is, has an effect. I was also very lucky to receive a, um, a grant to test out some new uh, technology at nano string so they do spatial biology so it's it's very above my field but basically I was very lucky to send some of our samples our mini brain tumor samples um, to nano string and see what the effect of our drug was on that scale and we were able to see that that has also shown us that the drug is working so again I'm right in the middle of that data so I can't say much but um,
0: yeah it's definitely coming along. (laughs) Wow that's so exciting so let's pretend for a second that your research does what you think it does right now so it makes the tumors basically not spread as as fast as they were before and these are very fast moving tumors so what would that look like at the end so would that help the surgeons be able to locate the tumor and be able to take it out easier or you know what's the amazing thing that your research could lead to
2: Yeah, so exactly that. So if the tumor is in an area that can be surgically removed, so unfortunately in the brain, a lot of, so if a tumor is found in the brainstem, you can't exactly surgically remove, but let's say it is in an area that you can surgically remove. If we've reduced the spread of these cells, then you're more likely to have an effective surgery if you are able to take it out. So if you can, you can have a complete removal of that cancer if it's all contained in the one area, versus single cells that have escaped and ended up on the other side of the brain, they're so much harder to see. You, you can't exactly see a single cell or a, like a small mass in a brain. So that's sort of one one good thing coming out of this. And the other end of it is, um, if it is in an area that you can't particularly you know go in for surgery, you could also treat with radiation or um, additional chemotherapies, so sort of increasing the chances of those therapies for working. So again, reducing the chances of those single cells that have escaped to go and form secondary tumors and, you know, destroying more brain matter. It's all about sort of containing it and stopping it from spreading as far out. Absolutely. It sounds
1: life-saving. That is
2: amazing. Fingers crossed. It's it's really exciting stuff, just seeing it working like, you know, in the lab.
1: Yeah, and especially as you were saying that um, brain cancer research hasn't really come that far in the last 20 years to have these you know, new, new drugs and um, new methods that could potentially, you know, extend or save lives like that is just going to be amazing. So I'm so excited to hear more about your research in the future.
2: Thank you. Let's, let's see. It's,
1: it's very exciting on my end as well, just to see how it progresses. Absolutely. So we have a bit of a um, segment here called Peak and Pit. So what is the best and worst part about being a researcher? Okay, so I'd start. let's start with the worst
2: so we can end with the best. Um, the worst, I think, I don't know if it's the worst, I don't know. It's sort of coming to terms with failure, I think. I wouldn't say that's a necessarily bad thing. I think it's more of a learning experience really, but it's getting better at seeing things not work and not taking it personally. I think for me, that has been one of the biggest struggles over my career as a researcher, um, just learning how to not be so bogged down when things don't work because that's just the nature of science. Not everything is always going to work perfectly. And sometimes a negative result is still a result like that is still an important thing that you found and it's not you know a bad thing so I think I want to say that's the worst thing but maybe another worst thing is just kind of like getting enough sleep
1: (laughs) yeah I definitely survive off coffee so
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah we've we've moved on to multiple cups of coffee at this stage so (laughs) if yeah some of the best things I think is like the sense of achievement even from like little things like I think that sort of touches on you know, not seeing everything as being a bad thing, but like, you know, celebrating small wins. I've become better at doing that um, throughout this process and just feeling like I have a sort of sense of achievement and a sense of I'm doing something good, Um, even though it might not seem like it's a lot right now. Whatever I do is going to help someone in the future, whether it be, you know, a small amount of help or a large amount of help, I think it's going to make some sort of difference. And I think that really, really helps like spur me on and that gives me a lot of purpose.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think Rebecca and I can definitely relate to that passion for um, our research helping other people. So it's so nice Mm -hmm. to hear.
1: And especially so nice to hear from like somebody that's doing cell research as opposed to we do research, uh, you know, in a a later phase sort of with humans. So it's so nice to hear that, like, you know, Mm -hmm. across all phases of research, you still feel like you're helping and you're still trying to make a difference. So that is really exciting.
2: Yeah. And I guess just to touch on that point briefly, like I used to get very stuck in this bog of, oh, I'm not doing a lot because I'm just working on cells. And what are these cells doing? They're so small, like nothing's working. I don't like have any, you know, it's just, you get stuck in this rut and then you realize that like, The research that you guys do is incredible, firstly, (laughs) but like, it's also making like huge differences. And the research that I'm doing is also making a difference. And like, it's not helpful to compare and contrast between the two, Um, but everything that we're doing all has the ultimate goal of finding answers and helping others. So I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think sometimes researchers are portrayed as a bit scary. We're the mad scientists in movies and, you know, we're creating monsters, but, you know, really we're in the lab trying to solve brain cancer or, you know, we're trying to help people with breast cancer or adolescents with their mental health. There's just so many ways that we're trying to help rather than the scary people, <laughs> people look like in movies. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. And like... always seem to think that i'm this like very analytical very harsh human but like science is inherently a creative field i think a lot of people forget that that you are doing very creative things on a daily you're problem solving like you know you're thinking out of the box constantly and everyone seems to think that I'm just like thinking like formulas or something (laughs) which is 100% not the case but I think it's like sort of taking away that sort of image of like the, the scientist in movies I think is really important 100% yeah
1: anytime you say to someone I'm a researcher they go oh so yep you're in the lab or like and you know there's so many different ways of being a researcher and it's not just about you know, one different type. There's so many different types as well.
0: So now, Amy, we have a few questions from our audience for our segment, Audience Asks. And we have a question from Natasha Lazarovic. And she asks, what brain regions are you studying? So are your tumors for one specific brain region or are they sort of mimicking numerous brain regions, areas of the brain? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So um, because we get a lot
2: of different types of tumors and we use uh, tumors that are derived directly from patients, um, we tend to find a lot of different regions of the brain. And because, like I said, these invade so far out, they tend to pop up in all regions of the brain. But one particular type that I look at in, uh, it's a pediatric form, it actually originates in the brainstem. So that's Sort of where it starts and again that sort of becomes a caveat to surgery and prognosis because that's such an important and delicate region um, but we've also seen that in the literature these tumours that start in the brainstem can end up as far as the frontal lobe so we really you know are thinking about the whole brain as a picture here of course you know there are different Areas in the brain that these cancers like to sit in—they have little niches. That's also what the literature is currently looking at. So it's really hard to sort of pinpoint it to one region at the moment. That's so interesting. So how does how does that work? Maybe you could explain. So we can—you know—we're doing some work at the moment where we can pick up samples from you know the pathology department in the hospital. I'm very lucky to work right near it, (laughs) being in the Children's Hospital. So we can collect tumor tissue that's come out of uh, surgery. So like a biopsy, for example, and then that we can put straight into culture, so we can try maintain those uh, characteristics. So we like to, you know, use conditions that are better mimicking the brain. So you know, things that are more relevant to what we find in the brain. Again, environments that are more relevant to the brain. So we grow them as spheres potentially, so they're in the three D um, state. They're not as you know, they're not stuck on a plate, like I keep saying, because that's yeah. not what it is. so we try to, you know, maintain those characteristics straight out of the patient, um, as much as we can. And even if we are working with cell lines, we also like to maintain those characteristics, again, using, using things that are more relevant to the brain chemistry, um, and all that. So yeah, it, it's hard to sort of pinpoint an actual region. But many brain models that are currently in, de- in development are basically just the large main region of the brain at the moment. But People have developed specific regions, um, but that's not our lab at the moment.
0: Yeah, I, d- I guess I didn't know that there was certain tumors that like to be in certain places.
2: Mm. That's, yeah, really,
0: that's something new that I've learned today. Yeah,
2: no, we've definitely seen a lot of studies coming out That's you know, they ha- they follow a very distinct pathway depending on where they start off. So, for example, if, if a brain cancer starts in the brainstem, you might see them, you know, form a niche um, as they move out and they follow that pathway. And then they spread out far and wide from that. So um, that's a lot of work that a lot of other people in the field are doing, but it's really interesting to see that that, that's something that they do and we can potentially exploit that going forward.
0: We have another question from um, Miriam Mando, who wants to know if there's any relationship between the things that we eat or the things that our mother ate that could impact how fast tumors grow. That is a really interesting question. I think a bit
2: out of my area of expertise. So the the agent or the the drug that we're using is actually a derivative of omega-3 fatty acids. So... Yeah, I I have no place to say anything in terms of like, you know, the development of that agent, because it was done by, you know, collaborators. But from just doing some basic research and basic reading at the moment, you know, trying to write my literature review, it looks like the omega-3 fatty acids acids in your diet could potentially, don't take my word for this, decrease the chances of uh, cancers forming. So I think that's just where that research sort of stemmed from, like seeing a lot of um, data coming out of regions in the world that have high omega-3 fatty acid intake, Right. there's lower risks of cancers. So I think that's sort of where that research does stem from and where that, that agent was developed from. So is that, yeah, it's really interesting that our drug is actually an omega-3 fatty acid derivative.
0: I was going to say, is there anything you found are there certain environments where the tumors spread faster than other environments? Yes, so
2: this is the thing. Um, Cancer cells inherently are very uh, the technical word is heterogeneous. So there's a lot of different things going on in each specific cancer. So one person's cancer might have a completely different profile to another person's cancer. So just keep that in mind. But we, some of my early work in honours, I was actually able to show that a particular type of um, subtype of brain cancers moved much faster on certain stiffnesses of um gels. So yeah, still very soft, but at certain stiffnesses, so potentially those that might mimic like white matter tracks in the brain. So like long white matter tracks tend to have a slightly more stiff um structure than the surrounding soft brain. Um wow. we were able to sort of see that potentially some cancers might move much faster and sort of pull themselves along these white matter tracks or regions that mimic these white matter tracks. Um, And you can manipulate that potentially. And then we saw other types of cancers showed no difference in the way that, so it doesn't matter if you put them on a very soft surface or a slightly stiffer surface, it didn't matter. It didn't change anything. Um, We also saw that um, potentially uh, the stiffness of the underlying surface might also direct how they respond to existing therapies. So they might be more sensitive to a certain drug than they are to another drug, just depending on where they're growing. So, but it's all... it's all very dependent on the actual cancer. So that's the, that's the thing. It's like the whole shift into personalized medicine is sort of where that's kind of going as a whole. It's like everyone's cancer is different and how can we um, model and mimic how those cancers work outside of the human brain so we can you know, develop the best type of therapy for them going forward. And I
0: think that's such an amazing point because when people hear the word cancer, they think, why haven't we cured cancer yet? well because it's not just one type and even if you just say brain cancer well within that there's actually hundreds and hundreds of different types so you know now they're doing what you said precision medicine where they're trying to solve each individual person's uh individual cancer in a way it's fascinating Mm,
2: yeah and it's just even just seeing it you know manifest in front of you like you don't really realize that like the extent of how different each cancer is even though it might have the same name like they all act very differently they all respond differently so it's all about you know developing better ways we can screen them at the beginning of you know a diagnos- a diagnosis journey
1: Yeah, 100%. It's so interesting. And, Mm. you know, I think there's a lot for, um, you know, the general public to learn about, you know, sort of how this research works. And I think today you've given us such a good insight into brain cancer research on like a cellular level. So thank you so, so much for um, coming on the podcast today and for definitely teaching us some new things about brain cancer research.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And like, I've definitely learned how difficult it is to explain the complexities of all of the things that people are doing at the lab. Like it's definitely a feat, but um, thank you so much for giving me a platform to you know, speak openly and um, talk about the stuff that I'm doing. I think it's really great that you guys are doing this.
1: It's amazing and good luck for the rest of your PhD journey as well.
0: Thank you. Are there any um, take home messages you wanna to give to our audience? I don't know, my
2: sort of take-home message to myself really out of yeah. being a PhD student is just to be kind to yourself throughout the whole process. So if you are wanting to do something like a PhD or a master's or any sort of research work or work in a lab, just You know, at the end of the
0: day, be kind to yourself and celebrate all the things that you achieve. Definitely some inspiration for everyone. And being kind to yourself definitely is so important during this this journey. So we want to keep up to date with what you're up to and your amazing new findings. So where can people hear more about your research? Yes. So um, you can find me on Twitter.
2: So my Twitter handle is just my name, Amy Sarker, with an additional R at the end, because
0: apparently I'm not the only Amy Sarker in the world. (laughs) You can find me there um, and on LinkedIn for my name as well. Perfect. And we'll also post your contact details on our website. Thank you again, Amy, for being on the We've Done the Research podcast. Thank you again. This has been really fun.
1: Thanks for listening to We've Done the Research today. We hope you learned something new. And if you like our content, please follow us to hear new episodes every Thursday. You can follow us at Done the Research on Twitter. Catch you next week.